You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So this is not our usual episode of Labor Relations Radio, and I'm going to give you a real quick backstory as how this episode came about. If you haven't figured out by now and listening to Labor Relations Radio over the last year or so, I'm a very inquisitive person. I like to solve puzzles by collecting data points and try to figure things out by connecting the dots of those data points. I truly think that if one takes in as much information as possible, one can arrive at better conclusions. Well, over the last several months, I've been listening to and reading experts on population pyramids and demographics. And whether you're a business owner, a manager, or a union official, this affects everyone. Now, It's an issue that I've been aware of for the last couple of decades, but like everyone else, I haven't paid that much attention to it until very recently. The bottom line is this. The baby boom generation is leaving the workforce. The labor participation rate has declined as opposed to pre-pandemic, and the post-baby boom generations are not procreating as their parents once did, and each successive generation is having fewer and fewer kids, which means in 18 to 20 years from now, there will be fewer people in the workforce, and it's declining each generation. Now, there's a lot of theories as to why, whether it's lifestyle choices, fertility rates, urbanization, and a host of other potential causes. But this seems, by the way, to be mostly affecting what we consider the Western world. And there's a great website called Population Pyramids where you can see what I'm talking about in visual form. And whatever the reason, the fact that there are fewer workers supporting the economic systems, this has significant ramifications on our nation's economy as well as that of the world. So I'm trying to connect all these dots. And the easiest way I can sum this up rather crudely is in a few years, there won't be enough workers to change your diapers and feed you pudding. So as some of you may know, during the month of May, I've been driving across the country four times. And in fact, it's a long story as to why, but last week as I was making my way west, and I'm on the east coast today, I'll be heading out west again tomorrow, I was listening to a podcast wherein the guest was a researcher who'd been conducting research on the birth gaps around the world. Now, as I was listening to this, the guest referenced the economic ramifications and how the declining birth rates will affect infrastructures, reducing taxes collected by governments, and as well as potentially an oversupply of real estate in certain areas, and then food supply shortages. So coincidental to all of this is the somewhat recent advent of artificial intelligence, as well as robots in the workplace, and of course, immigration, which is a big deal in the news today. So rather than taking a negative view of all these things, it led me to wonder if perhaps with the declining birth rates and a reduction on the populations in the Western world, might the advent of AI and robots and immigration be a good thing? 
So with all this swimming in my head, as I was driving about 75 miles an hour on Interstate 80, somewhere over flyover country or in flyover country, I called a friend of mine and started sharing all this stuff and said, I'd really like to get an economist onto the podcast to go through some of these data points and ask questions. Well, as he and I were talking, he said, hold on a minute and patched in an economist by the name of John Morrow. So for the next hour, as I was driving cross country, John, who happened not to be feeling well that day, was kind enough to listen to my rambling questions and share his thoughts. And about an hour into it, I asked John if he would come on to the podcast and have the same conversation so that I could record it. So adding to my collection of data points, this is my conversation with economist John Morrow. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, John Morrow, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are Thanks you today? For having me. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing very well. Thank you. So as we get into, or be, I guess before we get into this fascinating topic, at least fascinating to me, um, maybe give the listeners some background as to who you are and, and why our mutual friend recommended you to be the genius to answer all my questions. <laughs> Well, I'm uh, I'm an economist, uh, graduate of uh, Rutgers University. Uh, that's where I have my master's degree at in economics. I uh, specialize in an area of banking, uh, economics, and, and currency, and I do a lot of uh, consulting work. I do have a different perspective, which is a Franklin. Uh, perspective of economics. Um, I had worked with uh, Milton uh, Friedman's foundation for a bit on uh, freedom to choose. I am uh, considered a conservative uh, free market economist with some caveats, which are a little bit different. And I just tend to have a different way of, of looking at money. Um, I do a lot of uh, predictive analysis of the economy, and I've worked with, um, like, the Council of Foreign Relations and uh, the Trilateral Commission. I've uh, written uh, conservative-based documents uh, for them, which uh, those organizations tend to lean left and tend to lean towards a worldview that I don't agree with, but I do like uh, providing uh, input in documents for them that would make them potentially look at another worldview. Interesting. So um, you're not a Keynesian economist, economist, right? No, I'm not. I am not. Now, I I do agree that Keynes was uh, very smart in a lot of areas, and um, I don't think that he should be totally discounted, but uh, his socialist uh, viewpoints, which tend to uh, go towards that side of the spectrum, I, I wholeheartedly disagree with him on. Okay. So let me lay out for the listeners why we're doing this episode. Um, as as our subscribers on Labor Union News know, because I sent out a note, I a week ago was driving cross-country uh, to Wyoming, and which I'll be doing again in two days. And as I'm driving long distances, I happen to listen to podcasts. And over the last six months, I've taken a fascination to population pyramids, demographics as it relates to birth rates. And I happened to be listening to a particular podcast, and the guest on there was somebody who'd done studies on the birth gap. 
And as a result of that, I called a friend and I said, hey, do you still listen to so-and-so? And he just had a guest on talking about birth gaps. And I'm really fascinated by this topic. I'd love to talk to an economist. And so our mutual friend dialed you in, John. And I think unexpectedly, you didn't know you're going out to a conference call and I was doing about 80 miles an hour somewhere in the Midwest and just started laying out these discussions. Um, but the essence of it is, so we have, and I've known this for years, the baby boom generation is basically retiring. I think this year I've heard is the peak year in which the most baby boomers will retire in any given year. The successor generations being the yuppies and then the millennials and then the Gen Zers, each of which are having fewer kids than their prior generations or their parents' generation. As a result of that, and I think this also has to do with the pandemic, we have a labor force participation rate, which is less than it was going into the pandemic and seems to not be easing. And so we have these tight labor markets right now. At the same time, we're starting to see a downward trend in the economy, more layoffs, et cetera. And then we also see the advent, and I'm connecting a whole bunch of dots for you. We're also seeing the advent of artificial intelligence and then greater usage, at least in some industries, of robots, which is, you know, that generally technology is always, there's always been some displacement due to technology. And so I'm wondering, as the world seems to be heading towards a recession, to say the least, if, in fact, due to the demographic shifts and fewer people in the job market and tighter labor markets, are we going to be okay through this or is it going to get much uglier and kind of where we're heading? Well, I do um, help consult with the uh, Economic Innovation Group, uh, which is a bipartisan organization, uh, EIG.org, Um one of the things that we've all looked at is is that uh, things have the potential to get very, very bad. Um, when you look at what just happened uh, with uh, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, how it went bottom up uh, because it was so leveraged by uh, the um, uh, Silicon Valley and the uh, uh, big technology in California, there you had the uh, right mixture of the startups needing money to be able to get started, all of them at the same time, and not having any money there in the banks. Now, that bank is indicative of 186 uh, other banks um, that the uh, Federal Reserve went to shore up uh, very quickly. We have a structural problem with our economy there, and a lot of that is going to be driven by artificial intelligence and machine learning language. Uh, the machine learning, which is a subset of AI, uh, has the potential to displace workers uh, just like um, AI does. And when you look at the look at California, whose economy is hugely based upon uh, big technology, and you look at the possibility of 
a uh, large computer with a lot of computing power being able to displace thousands of programmers, uh, that is huge. And just like we had a market disruption in our market when the Internet came into being and everybody was making money hand over fist on the Internet during the 1990s, we see that same possibility, potential to happen here, but we're concentrating the we're concentrating the wealth, and that fewer people will have that amount of money because they're the ones that have the resources to be able to provide uh, artificial intelligence to the rest of the world. And so, like ChatGPT. Uh, open AI, you're looking at uh, as potential market disruptors. You're going to see a lot of lobbying by big tech firms like Google, like um, Amazon, like Facebook to stop what ChatGPT is doing. And you've already heard the calls for that happening. So I think that, you know, we need a trigger to happen for our economy to fall because there are several mechanical things that uh, President Biden has done to our economy, made us more reliant on the world oil supply, OPEC's reducing the oil outputs or paying far more for the fuel that powers our economy. And we have lots and lots of other idealistic things rather than logical things that have been put into place, which all impacts us, the consumer, and, and, the, and, the, and the worker. And when you deprive the economy from being able to exploit opportunities and then you take away jobs, it's a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for a depression far worse than the Great Depression of the 1930s and that it could possibly last longer and not saying that we're going to go into that, we have predicted that that is indeed a possibility by the end of 2024 that we are in a deep uh, depression. And it will only be whoever the next president is that could have the capability of taking us out of that depression very, very quickly. So before you go there, let me let me back up a little bit. And you know, part of the thing about being a podcast host is have really smart people on and don't ask stupid questions, but I got to ask stupid questions. So one of the things you started with California and we have AI that is going to take the tech jobs of people programming, right? So if you, if you remove their incomes from the economy, your tax base will fall, but there's still goods and services that have to take place or to be provided, right? They, given the fact that they won't be putting taxes into the system, California is already running some $18.6 billion deficit or something like that. But you still, we still have a need for plumbers and pipe fitters and carpenters and welders and, you know, folks that also feed the economy. Right. Is it, right. Is it just the removal of those high paying tech jobs that is going to, sap the strength from the economy and is it only california or is that going to happen everywhere 
Um, we look at it as being widespread. So, you know, we, we look at it as the programmers, but then there are other things that AI helps to facilitate. A lot of these entrepreneurs that have knowledge, that's all going to be already in the AI. The AI will be able to conceive of that and try to um, help people. If you say, hey, I have this great idea for a new business, do you think that it will work? Uh, the AI will be able to go through, look at uh, the market, look at uh, everything, trends, and be able to uh, give you a good idea of whether or not this is something that could be successful. When you look at digital content creators, well, I mean, look at where we're at now. In another five years, um, they're going to be able to take like a Harrison Ford. They'll be able to scan him in. They'll be able to uh, de-age him, put him to where he was like 30 or 40, uh, and then put him into a movie, and Harrison Ford will never have to show up. Uh, and they will create you know, fake um, people uh, that are, are, have never existed before, give them voices, and have them act every bit as good as our best actors. So there's a lot in the advertising, marketing, big tech world uh, that's going to be affected. But now, like what you've said is, is that we need to have uh, farmers, we need to have plumbers, we need to have truck drivers, um, we need to be able to make goods and uh, provide services. Um, will we have robots walking around someday? And doing those physical things like farming the fields and everything, uh, no, I, I, I don't see that happening for probably another 60 to 100 years. And then we'll have another uh, revolution that will um, happen at that point in time. We will have some robots doing uh, some things. They're not going to be like a, a, a humanoid looking like robot, though. We could have like a, a tractor and combines that are totally automated so that you don't need to have a driver uh, for them. Yeah, and, we're starting oh, to see that now. Right, right. And, and, and we will see that to a point before we make the leap to uh, creating our own I call it a humanoid-like robot that has arms, hands, fingers, legs, and can do the, the tasks that we do. I mean, at some point, it's easy to conceive that if you call a plumber to fix the plumbing in your house, that you may have a robot show up at your house. That, I think, is down the, down the line uh, quite a ways. Uh, I think there are a lot of uh, technologies that have to be worked out uh, before now and then. But um, what we'll have is that we'll have a disruption in the technology uh, sector. That technology sector, um, now we're going to have you know a, a huge amount of money, velocity of money that was, was trading hands in that technology market. And it was connected to um, the the companies that do physical things. Like if you're a plumber, you do advertising on Google, on Facebook, uh, through Amazon. Uh, all of those are going to go away. So now we have a real problem. We've got a huge amount of money. Uh, your money supply is huge, and you don't have nearly amount uh, near the amount of uh, labor or uh, productivity being performed because you have all of these people out of jobs and you and you have the um, you have the technology 
the AI in machine learning doing most of this. And so that affects everybody. That means inflation is going to rise really high, really quickly. Uh, there should be uh, what we're looking at is hyperinflation around the world with an AI revolution, depending on how quickly it is allowed to be introduced and put out there. If you let it go with the free market, and again, I'm a free market economist, but I also look at the free market can cause pain. And by allowing the technology unfettered into um, our economy, you're looking at uh, a huge transformation in the economy, a lot of very smart individuals being put out of work and having to retrain and redo something and be able to find jobs. And so these entrepreneurs are going to have to come out there and say, hey, I've been in big technology all my life. Now I have to do something different and I have to think differently. And that's going to be a very big challenge uh, for us and for our economy. So let me, let me break that down a little bit. You mentioned hyperinflation. And, and inflation is essentially um, the value of the dollar or whatever currency fiat currency, et cetera, of either too much on the market as it relates to the purchasing of goods or services, right? It's the money supply in relation to productivity. If you have uh, too much money and uh, not enough productivity, then you have high inflation. And, you know, vice versa, if you have uh, too small uh, uh, too small a pool of money and you have a lot of productivity, then you're, you're going to have very low inflation. So let, let me go back to California for a minute. So California has been experiencing, at least in the real estate market, a lot of inflation, right? Especially in the Bay Area. Their housing prices for a two-bedroom house, three-bedroom house are like phenomenally through the roof. Would that not cause it to decline to the point of some sort of equilibrium for what the market value should be? Well, I mean, if, if you're looking at that in respect to, you know, an AI causing mass layoffs, I mean, uh, yeah, the, the housing market, the prices are going to drop in relation to uh, the amount of uh, money that is out there. And so you should see prices come way down as people move from California and there are less uh, purchasers out there. Right now, uh, there's market value that is out there in the Bay Area because of all the technology uh, companies that are out there that are paying very good wages. And so I don't really look at that as being inflation. Yes, the prices are inflated, but that's not inflation uh, causing uh, that uh, as what we look at as far as currency inflation. No, I, I realize that. I'm just, I'm trying to like sequentially go through this. So we have a Bay Area that's full of high tech folks that suddenly get replaced by AI and that's more regional, but that, I guess I'm trying to get to where the, the, the regional thing becomes a contagion everywhere else. I don't well, know if contagion is the right word, but. Well, I mean, really things like this do start off as a contagion. They start small and they build big. And you normally have uh, some uh, markers, some milestones uh, that 
uh, are a prelude to the impending disaster. And it's only up to us to see whether or not we will look at look at those milestones, take them seriously, and then change our behavior to, and change policy to be able to stop uh, the disaster. And, and so um, you look at, uh, you know, what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and what the Fed did to go in to bail that out, uh, to bail them out. We're not really doing anything to address uh, the underlying problems of why we have 186 banks that are in a very similar uh, situation. Um, we need to really look at um, the way that we do banking uh, and the way that we create currency uh, can help uh, ameliorate uh, this type of uh, problem or the types of problems that we're seeing now. The areas out in California that are very heavy into programmers and and uh, content creators and and advertising and marketing and media Hollywood um, those have the potential to uh, you know e- even if we do things right nationally those areas are going to get hit very very hard um, you know I, I mean at at the point that you can create an actor from scratch that is a digital actor that looks and acts better than any actor that's out there. Um, I mean, you've, you've got yourself a gold mine and you don't have to employ any people. You don't have to do set uh, creation or anything like that. You can allow an AI computer. So everything goes to computing power and how much money can you afford to be able to purchase the computing power in order to be able to make a, a movie like that. And as long as the computing power is cheaper than what it is in the physical world to be able to build and, and hire people, uh, the virtual world is going to win out over top of the physical world. And so those areas are really going to be decimated the hardest. And so while, you know, everybody says, oh, you know, California is a dream place to live because of the scenic beauty and everything, um, you know, you, you have the uh, areas right now where you have the huge disparity between the rich and the poor. And that is only going to get much, 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 much worse in California, the center of all of the venture capitalism in the United States and where a lot of these smart people are, uh, it's going to deteriorate with the uh, advancement of AI. It's interesting because somewhat of a side note, um, the writer's strike that's currently going on in California right now in Hollywood is one of the big issues is AI taking writers' jobs. And... You know, it's 10,000 yeah. writers or something are out on strike in Hollywood over that issue and yeah. the residual payments and stuff like that. But. Right, right. And, and we've seen this uh, happen, you know, uh, uh, take Ford, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ford was one of the first ones uh, in the United States to pioneer the use of, of robots. And when you look at uh, what they did, displacing uh, union workers. Well, you know, if you're a union worker, you took you took offense to uh, those robots uh, coming in and doing that job. 
And, you know, uh, there were economists that are like me that are uh, free market economists that were up there saying, oh, don't worry, you know, because the robot is there, it makes the product cheaper. And because the product's cheaper, then it creates other opportunities in the marketplace. Well, you know, it's easy to say when it's not your job and right. you're, you're losing your job. And so you're going to see, you know, a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. Uh, from the advancement of these technologies. Now, they could slow it down and uh, buffer this, but all the countries in the world would have to agree to that. Uh, and then we get into you know, a, a uh, you know, one-world order or one-world nation doing that, which that's arguably one area that, you know, hey, a one-world order could actually be useful for something like that or, or an agreement among all the nations of the world to slowly implement um, AI technology. But there's always such uh, competition in the world to be able to develop the next you know, missile guidance system or satellite system or, you know, know, uh, things. There are too many countries that would cheat. And so I don't see any way to put that genie back into the bottle. So that, that kind of goes back to my first question or the first hypothesis is given the lower birth rates, given the fact that our labor participation rate is, is declining and you know each successive generation is having fewer and fewer kids is ai something that needs to be slowed down or in fact is it something that should just grow naturally because we don't have enough workers to begin with and i i go back to your your analogy about the plumber like i can't get a dishwasher repairman here to save my life right now right so it's you know we have such a shortage out there that maybe this isn't a bad thing. Right, right. Well, I mean, um, you know, we, we've had in manufacturing for a long time, let's uh, build in plan obsolescence when you look at, you know, like light bulbs. Hey, we don't want light bulbs to last for 100 years. And so, okay, we're going to make them so that they last one year or whatever. Well, competition kicked in over a period of time, and now we have uh, LED 40-year uh, light bulbs, which are, you know, very energy efficient. We'll, you know, we'll have that, uh, we went from planned obsolescence, and as you get more into being able to provide services uh, through uh, something such as a robot and stuff, well, then, okay, we're not going to build things that are planned obsolescence because some people would say, okay, rather than fixing your dishwasher, just replace it. That was the old mantra. Just go out, spend four or $500, and replace that dishwasher. That, that, that's, that's what you need to do. That was the attitude. And um, I think in the future it will be, okay, no, we're not going to just replace everything. We'll, we'll have services that are going to be performed by automatons or robots that would you know come your house to be able to uh to uh fix things in in that manner so you know i i i think that that whole um thing there uh you know we're going to see a dynamic change in in manufacturing and having things that last longer i think people are going to see that that's better for uh the environment 
uh, that we're fixing things rather than just replacing things and crushing things and, and recycling them in that manner. We're going to, uh, you know, reuse more of them. Uh, I, I, I see that from a technology standpoint. Now, as far as the birth rate uh, goes, um, AI and machine learning, they're just tools for either or. And we see that now with the AI that we have um, right now. Uh, so like chat GPT right now, I know I've, I've uh, done a lot of background on energy, the economics of energy between coal, nuclear, new nuclear, um, solar, uh, hydroelectric, micro hydroelectric, um, and, uh, you know, I, I can tell you unequivocally, uh, wind and solar are a very, uh, bad deal for the consumer. Um, eventually, uh, it's, it's not for the rate payer, um, because the rate payer is offset by, uh, the tax dollars that go to fund programs for wind and solar. And so when you go in and you ask chat GPT about, uh, wind and solar technology as an economist, when I first started asking it questions, it would tell me the truth. Well, now it's been programmed to suppress the truth, and you just get a circular logic and reasoning even when you try to trip up the AI, because I was actually uh, able to trip up uh, chat GPT, and now if you just type in, you know, uh, uh, are the economics of uh, solar better than the economics of uh, new nuclear, uh, like a new scale uh, nuclear plant, uh, it will just it will just spit out garbage uh, and make a circular reference and never answer your question, um, and then. Uh, you know, going, go, you know, going back to that that point. So you you've got the truth. You know, uh, whether or not you're going to get uh, AIs that will tell you the truth or not, and I think that that's going to be a battle all in itself. Whether or not we're being fed propaganda, or whether or not we're being fed the truth, and I think there will be AI uh, AI you know wars, not physical wars, but uh, a war in the marketplace to provide. Uh, an AI that tells the truth, uh, because we're already seeing that battle happen, that we're replacing uh, logic and reasoning with propaganda. Uh, we see that with uh, ChatGPT. It's still the leader that's out there, but you're going to have competitors that are going to come up, and they're going to uh, take that away. Now, as far as population goes, um, AI can be very, very bad for it. Um, as an economist, I bad, bad for the you know, population. Yeah, yeah, it, it has the potential to be very bad for the population. One of the things that you know we uh, look at as an economist: uh, cause and effect and relationships. Right. Uh, you know, because there are a lot of things that um, are not a cause, but they're they, they may be core. They may have a correlation to it. And there are a lot of things that we cannot definitively prove, and we only uh, only ever have a hypothesis of this is causing this. Um, so, you know, as economists, we've looked at, okay, what is the prevalent thinking right now of the reason why our birth rates in the industrialized nations 
are lower. And, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, we, we don't have to have as many children. We have other opportunities to uh, pursue because technology has given us that. Industrialization has given us that. Um, that's one possibility. That's not a, a, a law in science is that our technology has helped us reduce the population of the world. I know Bill Gates is a big believer in that, but um, there are others that believe that it is um, uh, the reason why the population is uh, going downhill is because of the spread of pornography, Uh, breaking up relationships, people not feeling the need to have any uh, relationship, and AI... Um, you know, if you want to type in, you know, say, hey, I saw this beautiful woman, you took a picture of her, you go to AI and say, hey, I want to have her involved in, you know, something untoward on screen, uh, that's a very realistic possibility coming out, and that could depress our population rate even further when people find that there's no longer meaningful relationships uh, to be had in the world, nor do they seek them out because they're getting their lusts fulfilled uh, by images on a computer screen rather than, you know, the real world. And like I said, this is a, a fight between a virtual world and the real world, the physical world. And, you know, I think you're going to have the virtual world win in, in a lot of respects. We're seeing that now, I think, uh, if I say, you know, something uh, politically here where we have people that identify as something that they're not, they're virtually identifying as something because they're physically not that, you know, person. And, and so you know, I think that that might be something that, uh, you know, that would help or will not help, but will uh, exacerbate itself with the coming AI uh, revolution. Well, aside from the fact that I digitally in my head think that I look like Fabio, um, <laughs> I've I've heard a lot of different um, theories as to the declining birth rate from the urbanization. You know, when when people were more of a agrarian society, they needed more kids to be free labor on the farm. People move into the city, and then all of a sudden, kids become more of a cost burden than an actual benefit. And then the advent of birth control, the breakup of marriages, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that I've heard. Um, and, you know, given that we're at the point, plus the baby boom generation was just, you know, post-World War II is just a huge generation. So, but I guess it goes to the, you know, the next step. And now we're at, you know, and we see this in the news, unfortunately, due to mass shootings, these incels, you know, involuntarily celibate, I think is what it stands for. Right. And, um, but, and that's not just an American problem because you have that also in certain right. other countries around the world. But then given that, so we're going to continue to have a declining birth rate, which means there's fewer workers out there and, and machines, AI, et cetera, are going to take more of a role. Um, I, I go back to, is it going to be a balancing thing? And I've also, I've seen or heard different um, theories as to whether our global economy continues and is actually going to, one is that it's going to discontinue being a global economy, go to more of a regional economy due to the 
and regional by that, I mean like North America, et cetera, Mexico included. Um, and that the part of the reason for that is due to the fact that the United States is no longer securing the maritime water, so to speak, around the world. Right, right. Well, I, I mean, I guess, I guess in that uh, perspective, I, I see us going back to a cellular economy. We had a cellular economy. And when I say a cellular economy, um, like a cell has a cell wall, and you control what comes in and out of that cell. If too much comes in, you can destroy the cell. If too much goes out, you can destroy the cell. And that's the basis of uh, Frank, Franklin economics is, is uh, cellular economies. And so um, uh, his thought uh, on that is, is that borders are good. They're like your cell walls and being able to control what comes in and goes out of that cell is a very good thing. I think that we're going to go back to that. We went to this globalism mentality. Uh, I think that that started uh, early 90s, uh, probably got uh, really pushed uh, big by uh, the Bush family um, and about going into this new age, getting rid of mutually assured uh, destruction. And um, I think it's been a horrible uh, experiment uh, that we've seen has not worked very well, has caused pain around the world, has caused a country like ours to um, make China a, uh, a world power, uh, one that could possibly surpass us and inflict socialism upon uh, the entirety of the world. And so, you know, I, I think that we can really look at, uh, you know, look at uh, some benefits uh, coming back when we're um, acting as a cellular economy and we're acting regionally. I do believe that will be the case when you look at the new nuclear technologies that are coming out, uh, the ability to have, you know, 50, 60 years of uh, power in one area very cheaply, um, you know, it, it 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 makes sense that everything is is heading back towards a cellular economy and away from a globalist economy. I think AI is going to be part of that transformation, uh, being able to have that knowledge and that intelligence on a worldwide scale. I think will help people to go back to having uh, their cultural areas and their traditions uh, be reaffirmed uh, rather than uh, being more uh, melting pot like, which uh, America has traditionally been. So I, I, I do think that it will have uh, positives and negatives um, in, in that respect. So, you mentioned China for a second. I've heard a couple of different um, podcasts about the demise of China in the next decade or so. And it, and it has to do with their birth rates as well. They, um, at least on the data that's available, and in part due to the one-child policy, et cetera, um, they are in much, much worse shape than most people realize with respect to the amount of kids that they're not having. And which means that, you know, and essentially, as I understand it with the the theory is if you don't have enough people funding the aged or 
adding to the tax base, the infrastructure falls, everything collapses. Correct, correct. And uh, China right now is in much worse shape. China, however, is looking at putting other countries, such as the United States, in worse shape. Uh, so when you look at like the major investors of browsers of uh, TikTok, uh, those are all uh, sites that deliver visuals that um, you know help to reduce uh, uh, or harm uh, real real world relationships, and um, you know helps to reduce our our population. Now, will that work? Uh, I mean, will China go through a very painful time? Uh, yes, they will. Uh, they've been through very painful times before uh, under Mao, uh, for an example. Um, I don't believe that leadership uh, looks at that. As, you know, they look at that as just as part of uh, part of economic cycles. Uh, they just want to make sure that they are not feeling the most amount of pain and that other countries are feeling are, are feeling the pain as much as, as and if not more than China. And so you see um, yeah I've, I've worked with um, a lot of uh, mental health uh, professionals uh, here in the Midwest. Um, they believe where uh, the rates of consumption of uh, pornography are very, very high. Uh, much higher than the places in California that actually produce uh, quite a bit of the pornography. And they are saying that, you know, we're, we're having 70 to 80% of children transition to narcissists that could never have a meaningful relationship and uh, more than likely will never create any offspring. And so, you know, we have a, a narcissism problem that's caused by uh, pornography, and that's one of the reasons why China uh, doesn't allow TikTok in its country, uh, but, you know, allows it to happen over here. And the same thing with uh, browsers and a lot of the pornography uh, does not allow that to ha- be in China because they, know, they believe that it affects their birth rates. Well, if you add to that the whole fentanyl, issue which you know as i understand it is fentanyl is basically produced in china and that are the ingredients for it and then shipped over to the cartels and who ship it up here payback for uh the opioid wars um you know that that's why i look at it uh western world uh had china uh hooked for 80 to 100 years on opioids it it was uh, uh socialism that really brought them out of uh, having a lot of their population and had reduced their productive output uh, tremendously. It was only after uh, communism, socialism, came to uh, China that they were able to rid themselves of uh, the opioid epidemic and made themselves productive again. So That's, um, that's an interesting take that I've not heard, that the fentanyl, uh, let me... I don't want to put words in your mouth, but essentially the opioid crisis here, the fentanyl, is payback for the opioid wars 100 years ago? More than 100 years ago, right? 
I, I know it's a stretch, but but you know, I, I know it's a stretch. But there is an attitude against uh, Western uh, civilization. Uh, they, they you know um, adopt an Eastern uh, an Eastern uh, philosophy that's in China, and I think that those two warring things. You know, I I I think that that. Uh, ruminates around in, in their mind about that. I mean, clearly, China could do more to stop fentanyl production. It just simply does not because it doesn't benefit them to um, to address the fentanyl uh, and to address the illegal opioids. It, it benefits uh, their economy while it plays a huge detriment to our economy. So why would they stop that? And that's the same way when they actively pursue uh, things that they won't allow in their country, but they actively help to promote them in our country, which helps to decimate uh, the American family, uh, helps to break that up. Yeah, I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just interesting. Um, It it would merit further study, I think. um, But if you look at you know, the overall hypothesis, whether it's TikTok, porn, fentanyl, it's that, you know, you're removing, well, if you use the porn and and the lack of relationships, which obviously affects birth rates, and then you're taking out another 75 to 100,000 people a year on opioid overdoses, you know, fentanyl overdoses. Yep. I mean, that's, you know, you're you're wiping out a younger population, mostly younger. Right, right. And our younger population is having a hard time finding any type of happiness. Happiness, you know, uh, uh, for you and me, our generation, uh, was being able to pursue the American dream, work hard, uh, make make good money, uh, invest that, maybe get your own business, uh, get your own house, have wife, kids, family. That was the American dream. Uh, that's no longer the case anymore. I mean, even when you look at the business sense, uh, it used to be business sense, uh, I'm going to start my business, I'm going to bootstrap it, uh, we're going to grow it into a really large uh, corporation, and I may leave that to my kids. Now, the whole attitude is, um, I'm going to build it, make it look like it's a success, and then hope that Google or Facebook or Amazon comes and buys me out. That's the attitude nowadays is that we want to be bought out rather than being able to produce something that is long-lasting and is going to be here, uh, a business model that will be here for 100 years. Uh, everything's become uh, so much more fleeting with uh, technology. Once technology, um, I guess, is on its own path, uh, we have a chance to return to being able to build businesses and look at that as like, hey, I'm going to build something and I'm going to be proud of it and it's going to uh, stay uh, stay around uh, for a long time. And I think that it gives people a lot of satisfaction, a lot of pride, uh, rather than just you know, pursuits of, of pleasure, which our children are finding that that does not have long lasting happiness. Um, you know, very much you see that our, ch- our children nowadays are looking at, okay, this is what makes me happy. This is what makes me happy. And you're even, have, even having moms and dads 
that are pushing that, hey, do what makes you feel good. And, you know, we, we know from history, uh, um, you know, if you're a Christian, you know that, you know, there is a, there is a path, uh, towards happiness. And it's not normally through self indulgence, it's through self denial, uh, that you can actually find, uh, happiness in this world. And, um, we're seeing that that more and more, is a problem why we have suicide rates that are up, why people are doing more and more drugs. Um, we're seeing, you know, a lot less um, heartfeltness in, in the world, uh, uh, mercy, chivalry, uh, things like that. Those uh, seem to be eroding, uh, and we can see that from our, our media, uh, from the television shows that we produce. Uh, and things I, you know, I, I hadn't watched TV in a long while and I turned it on and I'm like, why is everything dark and dystopian? Uh, we used to have shows that were happy and uplifting and now everything is, is gritty and dark and evil. And I'm like, Hey, I, I, we, we don't want the anti-heroes. We want the hero heroes, uh, for our children to look up, to, uh, be inspired, uh, to aspire to be more, uh, than what they are. Well, it seems as though, um, culturally everything is you mentioned anti-hero but it's um yeah we're we are idealizing i think a a different subset of people you know whether it's in the media or the entertainment etc and it's not necessarily the underdog like rocky you know winning winning the fight at the end of the movie anymore right right Every every show you, you kind of watch nowadays is that there's uh, an evil government organization, uh, American behind it, uh, Americans to do can do no good. Uh, they're involved in uh, all the bad things around the world, and you know that really is a disservice to all the good that we do do. Do we get things wrong? Yeah, we do, and even when we have uh people that are in the white house that we don't disagree that, that we don't agree with um you know our military still does a very good job at putting forth uh good in the world do we have problems with our cia yeah probably a lot of stuff that we probably don't know what's going on do we have problems with our fbi oh yeah i believe that we have problems with our fbi but the uh uh, the military, the GI that's on the ground, uh, they think, they act, they, they're not there to do evil. They're not there uh, to do things like what the uh, United Nations uh, forces uh, do. And, you know, I'm, I'm still proud to be an American. I, I think that sentiment is being lost on the newer generation. They'd rather be something else other than American because American patriotism is, is dying. Uh, and I think that that is because of, you know, culturally our shows, our movies and everything are demonizing uh, Americans. I, I think that we need to get back to... Um, a place to where we're all proud uh, to be Americans. In fact, the Wall Street Journal just did a a uh, poll. I think it was about a month ago that it came out, and it said that you know they they did the same poll uh, ten years prior, and there was a 
high amount of patriotism. It was like 88% of people were uh, patriotic that were that were in America, and now it's down to like 48%. And I think China is going to do anything that they can do to help push that along. Russia's probably doing the same thing. Anything that we can do to help Hollywood produce more movies that uh, stigmatize uh, America as being an evil empire, I think that they're going to um, do that. And, you know, I, for one, hate seeing that happen. I know that um, unless there's a grassroots groundswell uh, among the people, uh, to stop that and that they're organized and they're focused, um, I think that, you know, America is going to be very unrecognizable uh, to the people that grew up in the uh, 80s and 90s by uh, 2040. Uh, I think that we will look very similar to a lot of these European nations that really never had any sort of of uh, patriotism or, or love of country. Well, I think um, there's a whole subset of Americans out there, mostly among the young, but I think they're being led by some people who are our age, that you know they are not growing up proud to be American, as you're saying. Um, and yeah, America's got its flaws and has historically had flaws, um, but they are they're being taught that it is not a, country to be proud of due to the fact that, and I think there's a couple studies recently done, but you know, if you ask a college student, you know, who is George Washington and they'll tell you he's first president, but he's a slave owner and not much else. Um, I I just heard that this week, but you know, I, I think in part, you mentioned Europe, there has been a move for at least a hundred years to push the United States toward European style socialism. And we're seeing it in the business world with first in California. Um, now it's happening up in Minnesota where they're trying to do what's called sectoral bargaining, which is similar to Europe. Right. They're, you know, the move to push universal basic income to do away with individual pensions or 401ks to go to more of a nationalized pension system like France. You know, that's been there for a while. Of course, you know, socialized medicine has been the rallying cry for at least 30 years. Right, right. And, um, you know, that push is only going to get um, harder. And the left is using tools that uh, the right actually developed now. And a lot of people have not made uh, the general electric connection, as I call it, uh, a lot of people are, are like, you know, what are you talking about when you when you talk about the General Electric uh, connection or syndrome or idiom? Uh, you look at um, General Electric uh, underneath Jack Welch um, became the largest uh, company in the world. Um, had a tremendous amount of wealth underneath Jack Welch and uh, Jack Welch is one of the um, forerunners that uh, pioneered uh, Sigma-6. And so when, when you look at it, you know, what, what's Sigma-6? Well, Sigma-6 is uh, how do we continuously improve our, our processes? And it worked very well for General Electric. It helped them to dominate 
multiple marketplaces. And um, what was interesting is, is that they became so big that they said, all right, we're not going to do it business with anyone as like a tier one or a tier two supplier unless you implement Sigma six in your processes. Well, that worked very well uh, for General Electric, and it changed the face that a lot uh, changed the way that a lot of big manufacturers work for the better. Um, but then when you look at okay, now we have that same uh, type of scenario that that uh, same uh, syndrome, the GE syndrome, happening with our big tech. They're saying now, okay, you know, uh, if you're going to be a, 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 supply, a supplier or a provider to uh, Amazon, if you're going to be a supplier or a provider uh, to um, Google or to any of these others, well, you have to have diversity, equity, inclusion plan. Uh, you have to have, you know, uh, recognize uh, all sorts of uh, uh, transgender philosophies, and they're trying to reshape uh the business of america like what um like what general electric did uh they're 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 pattern that they specifically have have mentioned the ge pattern and how that they were going to uh transform this they're they're also doing it you know environmental uh wise oh we only use wind and, and solar power to power our businesses and you know that helps to eliminate their competition when they say that they do that because their competition cannot possibly afford uh, to do that. And so um, we see a, uh, we can see a huge shift in the marketplace in pushing for this. The thing that we do see is, is that we see uh, good people standing up uh, and saying no uh, to it. Um, because they don't feel that it's right. It doesn't match their values. Um, and I think that that is uh, something that we're going to see more warring on in the media and whatnot of, hey, are, are we going to um, continue to allow um, people that have uh, mental issues, uh, people or uh, children, um, that have mental issues, adults that have mental issues, are we going to allow doctors uh, to continue to perform uh, surgeries on them to make them, quote-unquote, feel better? Um, you know, a lot of people see that as being immoral. I see that as being immoral. Um, here in Ohio, we're looking at passing the uh, SAFE Act uh, down in Columbus, which would prevent um, uh, children from being uh, uh, from undergoing uh, gender reassignment surgery and, or having therapies uh, thereabout, you know, I'm just saying, isn't this you know common sense? Isn't this a value that we hold that we don't take advantage of uh, people and we look at uh, we look at the companies that have a conflict of interest in making a moral decision uh, for that. We've had you know children as young as uh, thirteen uh, being you know transitioned so that you know they'll become sterile, uh, or you know uh, girls having their uh, a mastectomy, a double mastectomy to look more like a boy at, at a very young age, and you know we're 
seeing these things become more and more common. And I, you know, I, I just look at it, you know, if you look at somebody that grew up in the 70s and 80s, um, most of them are going to say, well, that's just reprehensible. Uh, you know, of course, uh, we shouldn't let children make adult decisions like that. And the more that I think that we uh, get away from uh, uh, a common morality and that morality becomes uh, perverted and diffuse so much so that we can't have a common world view and that um, Americans cannot become a melting pot because there is uh, too much uh, division uh, between them because of morality. We're going to see big tech keep on pushing their community standards and I think that that's at war with uh, Christianity, which Christianity is still the main um, thoroughfare religion in the United States. Well, I think um, so. Some of this is in regards to where people stand on the the moral cultural issue, but the cultural issues are bleeding into corporate America, right? And they're and. We're seeing this with the Bud Light thing and all that sort of stuff. I've always hated Bud Light, so it didn't really affect me at all. But um, so, but what's happening with this as it relates to the economy, um, I think in some respects, some of the DEI, ESG stuff, and I, you know, all every day there's a new set of number or letters coming out, but um, I don't know that it's got sustainability as it's being pushed on people versus sustainability when people lean into something. And in many respects, it's being foisted on whether it's consumers, whether it's in the media, you know, it's being foisted on people and there's a pushback to that. Um, Conversely though, where we're seeing a lot of union activity and, you know, glomming onto the collectivist ideals we're seeing in those more progressive type of companies. Starbucks, for example, um, you know, whether it's Apple or, you know, those that have leaned progressive. And now I think in some respects, they're starting to wonder, and I'm just this off the top of my head, you know, I'm not quoting anybody or have any information, but I'm wondering if they're starting to question how far they pushed in their political, cultural values, if that's not coming back to bite them with respect to all the collectivist union stuff that's coming at them. Right. And, you know, it was very weird to see uh, what I call an elder company or corporation like Anheuser-Busch adopt the mantra, a new age mantra uh, such as this, um, you don't see older established companies such as Kellogg's worrying about diversity, equity, and inclusion on their cereal boxes or UPS putting it on the sides of their uh, vans. Um, and that's typically because you have older people that are in charge. The adults are in charge there. The younger companies, though, and those tend to be the big tech companies, um, they have younger people that are in charge. And you do see that there is a sustainability among a certain sector of the population that now has 
adopted their community values. Uh, community values, uh, some will say communist values, um, that, that you know, Facebook has their community values, Amazon has their community values. Um, a lot of people look at that as a war to push out uh, Christian values, to push out uh, traditional American values. And I, I really think that you're having the old and the new uh, go to war. I think that, you know, people have said, well, academia is out of control. Uh, now we need to put the adults back in charge of academia because uh, most of your public school systems uh, now are filled with younger teachers, not with older teachers. Older teachers uh, tend to say, hey, uh, we're not going to put up with the crap that's coming down from the administration. And you really do have a sense of, um, you know, I, I look at unions you have some good unions. Uh, good unions are the ones that are responsive to their memberships. And then you have other unions that are bad unions, uh, no different than we have bad and good people. Um, well, then you're, you're looking at these teachers' unions, um, which are a tremendous influence of bad uh, throughout the United States for what they are pushing upon uh, our younger people. And that's not to say that we don't have uh, 80% uh, good teachers in the world uh, or in the United States, but that 20% of bad is amplified because they're capturing those young minds at such an age. And so, like what you're saying you know, now is that you don't think that like, uh, and you didn't say it, but I'll, I'll say it, wokeism is not sustainable. It's not sustainable now, but in the long run, as we tend to die off and the younger generation comes, well, the woke ideology uh, does have the capability to take over, even if it doesn't provide a benefit. It's just that mindset that you've gotten everybody into thinking around um, that can take over and, you know, people can... uh, have pride in something, in a movement, so much so that they will literally cut off their nose to spite their face. Even if it provide, if it doesn't provide prosperity, um, they can do that by taking pride in, oh, I'm saving the world because we're going to get rid of coal and we're going to get rid of natural gas. Uh, things that make no logical sense from... Uh, the standpoint of science uh, or the way that, you know, we consider science uh, and the scientific method uh, because we have so much activism, we have so much passion in our youth as we're dying out and the youth is is coming forward, uh, they can make the world a, you know, we can hand off the world maybe not a better place, but maybe the same as the previous generation, and they can take it into a much darker and worse uh, path. Well, it, you know, if you if you break this down, and this is, and you remove political party or even cultural issues, I think where we have tended to drift and where we're continuing to drift is individualism versus collectivism. And if you break that down even further, 
What I see happening, at least, and this is across the spectrum, is a form of tribalism. Everybody is in their own little tribes. And as a result, instead of respecting individuals who may be of another tribe, we're now putting the walls up between the tribes. You know, and it is fascinating to watch, you know, because I've been around a long time, but um, it's it started out probably two, three decades ago and then is just slowly morphed into something that, you know, we see racism, we see, um, you know, anti-Semitism, a whole bunch of other stuff, and people have just forgotten about the individual. Correct. And, and that is... That's going to get scary because it'll just be an endless cycle of which tribe has more power. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, unfortunately, unless we take uh, steps nationally, and there are, are other countries that have, you know, said that, you know, hey, part of our education is, is that we want our students to be proud uh, to be you know, an American, if you live in Ohio, we want them to be proud to be an Ohioan. If you live in Oregon, we want them to be proud to be an Oregonian. Um, you know, and we don't have that focus uh, here in the United States that, you know, some of the other countries uh, do, the ones that are moving in a more positive direction uh, to be able to provide prosperity. And, you know, a lot of this centers around academia, uh, another component of its mainstream media. Uh, we have all these activists that are in education. We have all these activists that are in mainstream media rather than people that are teaching and rather than people that are just telling the truth. We're getting all of this uh, manipulation uh, to have a different effect. Now, you know, some people may rightly believe that they think that they are helping out the world by uh, changing people's minds. Uh, but if you're not allowed to have a discussion, a civil discussion, if I you know, disagree with uh, something uh, that a millennial might have, and I'm not casting all millennials, but let's just say the, the more left-wing leaning uh, type of millennial, uh, if, I have, if I try to have a discussion with one of them, they will yell, they will shout like a petulant child rather than having, sitting down and using logic and reason. We're teaching our children to not think, and we're teaching them to be more passionate. Uh, and that's not always the best thing. Anyone that goes into a debate uh, that has any type of debating skills will always tell you that you need to remain calm. You need to not let your anger... Uh, get the best of you. You need to not let your passion get the best of you so that you can think with a clear mind. We're no longer teaching our, our children that. Uh, we're teaching them to feel and to be passionate. And um, while I, I, I do want our children to be able to feel that should, they should be able to use their mind. Yeah, critical, critical thinking is um, something from a bygone era. Yeah, unfortunately. So where um, we we kind of got off track a little bit in getting into the cultural issues because I'm still kind of puzzled as to where we are in the near and longer term future. I think the longer term future is more bleak looking um, based on some of the cultural issues. But 
in terms of the shorter term future, we're starting to see the slowdown on the economy. We have a declining birth rate. We have fewer people entering the workforce than previous generations, and the previous generations are all getting old and retiring. And we have a banking system that seems, it sounds as though it, it's uh, kind of screwed up right now. And we have a $32 trillion debt. <laughs> I, I think our debt is actually way higher uh, than that, when you look at the totality of our economy, I would, you know, probably uh, double that. Uh, when when you uh, look at um, unfunded uh, liabilities that America has, so um, you know, I I look at it as you know we have potential. We have a potential for a better tomorrow. Uh, we have a potential for a much better tomorrow. There are technologies. Uh, new nuclear technologies that we have that eliminate uh, the long-time problem of, of uh, fuel energy, the things that help our economy go that can re- radically reduce the cost of energy and not have any effect on our environment. That's something that's on the horizon. We're seeing uh, a lot of things happening with um, alpha uh isotopes uh, as far as medicine goes that can help uh, defeat the things such as uh, cancer. We're seeing a lot of things happening with uh, uh, immunology and genetics that can help us, you know, potentially live uh, longer. Uh, The things that uh, we, you know, we, we have a lot of, uh, capabilities, uh, especially looking to, uh, other planets, other stars. I think those are something that, that is going to be in our wheelhouse probably within the next decade. I think we'll uh, probably have regular uh, travel to other planets, uh, I think, because nuclear technology, again, should be able to make that uh, happen and, and make that happen very easily. So, you know, nobody, we, we have, nobody but, wants to touch nuclear. They're, everybody's afraid it's going to, we're going to turn into Chernobyl or something if we go nuclear. Well, you know, I, I've looked at, you know, there there's the old nuclear, uh, which is our, our light water reactors, and then we have our, our new nuclear. And our new nuclear uh, is based on uh, technologies that were developed at the late 60s, early 70s, and were set on a shelf because uh, they can't produce uh, the material in high qual- quantity to produce bombs. And that was during the 60s and 70s during the Cold War. That was something that they needed. The economies weren't great uh, at the end of the 60s and the early 70s. And so they had to shelve a lot of that great potential. Uh, There are uh, technologies uh, that are out there, many different types of uh, molten salt reactors that are out there that are based upon great principles that uh, we have new technology, new methods to make these uh, uh, reactors very cheap, uh, smaller, uh, inherently safe, uh, so that you could just walk away from the reactor and it'll shut itself down uh, in an emergency. And so, I, you know, I, I look at these technologies. Uh, they can consume uh, most of our nuclear waste that we have in the world. Uh, these are um, something that can bring a manufacturing boom back. 
uh, to America by producing these reactors on an assembly line, shipping them uh, to a place in you know, a state like uh, Ohio. If you had uh, 20 of these uh, small reactors, uh, you're looking at, you know, okay, we could have the worst blizzard in the world. Uh, we could have tornadoes strike here. And guess what? We're still going to have power uh, because we've made the, the grid, you know, more distributed. Um, I see a lot of people really liking this one because the isotopes, the alpha isotopes being produced uh, from uh, the different types of molten salt reactors uh, is like a smart bomb uh, against cancer. And uh, the alpha particle is a lot less harmful than uh, a beta particles, which are in a lot of the chemotherapies that are out there now to fight cancer. And so, you know, that's a, um, a huge uh, benefit. And I see a lot of people's minds changing on uh, nuclear technology. And a lot of people, they hate old nuclear technology. But when you tell them, hey, we can consume all of our nuclear waste, we don't need a Yucca Mountain, we don't need a, a storage area, we need to use our old waste as fuel, they get excited. And then when you tell them, hey, that these reactors reduce that amount of, uh, of uh, nuclear waste by 98%, uh, and it's only the waste that it does produce, that 2% of little waste that it does produce is only radioactive for 300 years. That's a lot better than a 30,000-year uh, time frame. And so you see um, a lot of companies that are out there that are in that space, which are startup companies. They need uh, money to get started uh, on this. Uh, you do have uh, Bill Gates's you know, in, in that space, but you have uh, Kairos, uh, you have Flybe Energy uh, that's in that space. How many um, How many years out is that from, like, it sounds like it's still in the development phase, but realistically, are we 10 years out, 15 years out? It's all based upon how fast that the government will let them run. Right now, we have... A, uh, a government that's a brick wall in this space. But China already has a demonstration molten salt reactor running, and it's running flawlessly. Um, that has the potential to replace all their coal-fired power plants once this is proven out. They look at, in another five years, that they will uh, go, th this one's molten salt cooled, they'll go to a full molten salt reactor in another five years to demonstrate it. And so you're looking at, before you have these rolling off the assembly line in China, you probably have at least 12 years. Now where China is at right now is where we were in 1969 with the molten salt reactor experiment in uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratories, which got shut down. So if we just recreated what we already had created, we would be at where China is at right now. Right now, the government is not allowing us to do that. Um, again, this is old notions about old nuclear and not allowing a, a new technology path to uh, push forward more quickly. And so, you know, we're, uh, I'm actually... Um, 
uh, fascinated with this technology, and I'm helping to uh, push states to have agreements with the federal government, much like they have agreements with, like, you know, uh, China to develop new nuclear technologies. Uh, I, I believe that the Atomic Energy Act of 1954, which still rules a lot of the uh, uh, rules under which nuclear is uh, promulgated in uh, the United States, um, I believe that it makes the provision for states actually stepping up to the table. So if the Department of Energy says uh, we're going to take a very slow path so that China beats us, uh, to developing our te- our technology or commercializing our technology, which that's what they did. They took our 1969 molten salt reactor experiment. That's what they're doing now, and they're on the path to beat us to commercialization because the path that we're taking is a 30 to a 40-year path for commercialization of a, of a molten salt reactor, whereas we could... Uh, if, if we let the free market work, um, we could have that technology probably in five years. But I don't see that happening because of politics. So what it sounds like is there, once again, China's taking our technology, building upon it, and then they're going to sell us back whatever reactor they come up with? That is the plan, and and I mean you can research molten salt reactors. Uh, look at the Shanghai Institute of Nuclear and Applied Physics was the ones that did the design for this uh, molten salt cooled reactor. It's actually a pebble bed reactor that's uh, cooled with molten salts. It will prove everything out so that they can do a larger demonstration uh, full molten salt reactor um, like what we had in in, in 1969. Uh, and then that has the potential. I mean, a, a lot of people look at fusion. I think that fusion has a lot of great potential, but I think the low-hanging fruit is the molten salt reactor technology, and that changes a lot of things. Uh, when you can produce electricity for less than $0.02 cents a kilowatt hour, has huge benefits for, like, uh, desalinization of water, uh, it can, you know, uh, um, lower the costs, make I- improve um, the livelihoods of, of everyone. But you're looking at some of these molten salt uh, reactor uh, designs to where it's less than a half of a cent per kilowatt hour uh, that's being pushed out there. And that's based upon what we did back in 1969 because we physically had a reactor running. It ran for four years. And it was, you know, uh, strenuously tested. We saw all the faults, uh, the materials that it was made out of. So we know what we had to um, achieve, and we have those materials now. There are some, you know, what I would call minor uh, issues that have to be worked out, Um, but they pale, you know, it uh, pales in comparison to the technology hurdles that are out there for uh, things uh, such as fusion, and the benefits are so huge. Again, these are small reactors. They're walk-away safe, um, and they can consume. uh, They can be designed to consume our nuclear waste that we have now. So um, right now, uh, we have enough uh, nuclear waste in the world 
uh, in the United States to potentially power everything that's powered now by nuclear for about 600 years uh, without ever having to mine any more uh, uranium. Hmm. But that would that would take away people's investments in uranium mines. True, true. It 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 it, it, it certainly would. It certainly would. So um, you mentioned a second ago desalinization plants, and I'm um, let's see. In a couple of days, I'm driving out to Wyoming, and Wyoming is one, if I understand it right, one of 14 states that are part of a 1923 treaty over the who gets usage of the Colorado River, which uh, the upstates on the river are, are saying, hey, you're taking too much of the water. Um, and it seems to me that desalinization plants would alleviate a lot of the issues that California has, as well as perhaps even Arizona, you know, if, if they're shipping water. Why are we not doing desalinization plants? Well, desalinization plants, as they are right now, and a lot of them are built on uh, reverse osmosis technology, um, and they're removing the um, re- uh, removing the, the salt from from the water, and then uh, cleaning it and treating uh, the water. When you uh, look at that, that. Uh, there's a lot of power, and then you've got a lot of the uh, filtration system, which is um, very costly. Uh, so that's one of the reasons it's it's easier to pump it from Colorado than to uh, put a uh, from the Colorado River rather than to uh, put a desalinization plant right on the uh, coastline, draw out seawater, and and clean. It's it's that expensive, and California has very high energy costs right now, much higher than the rest of the nation uh, per kilowatt hour. So, you know, the thing that they need is not more wind and solar. They need more power plants. They need uh, new nuclear uh, power plants. But then there's also a technology called forward osmosis, um, which can actually really uh, reduce that cost. Uh, for that, you need to have um, quite a bit of uh, carbon dioxide uh, to be able to do that. Now, uh, being able to get that uh, carbon dioxide uh, cheaply is one of the things that's like, oh, do we want to produce more carbon dioxide for the world or less? Right now, you want, uh, you want California to remain uh, the breadbasket of the nation, uh, with all the fruits and vegetables that are grown there, um, you really want more water uh, to be able to offset that. And to be able to do that, you uh, really want to have new nuclear power so you can reduce your costs uh, per kilowatt hour dramatically. And you also want to be able to um, uh, use the um, – uh, you also want to be able to use it and produce the carbon dioxide, that, which helps the forward uh, osmosis uh, uh, process. Okay, so we're we're a long way away from doing that unless we go to nuclear. Right, and you do have advocates, which traditionally were just wind and solar advocates, that have learned about new nuclear technologies, the benefits in medicine that they have with the alpha isotopes, and the benefits that they have for 
helping to facilitate uh, something uh, like uh, desalinization. Uh, there are also other uh, technologies uh, that they have uh, for uh, plasma gasification of uh, municipal solid waste, uh, which can produce uh, ultra-clean synthetic gasoline, ultra-clean diesel fuel, but it only works if you have really cheap electricity, which right now the only potential that we see for that happening is through new nuclear technology. Uh, plasma gasification has been around for a long time, uh, and it's very expensive because of the electricity costs. But if you dramatically lower the electricity costs, now you can, you're not throwing anything in a landfill anymore. Everything's going to a plasma gasification uh, site. Metals are removed, glass is removed, but everything else is consumed and put into its base elements, uh, which uh, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, uh, uh, the, all the hydrocarbons. So if you have food waste, you have sewage, uh, you have plastic, you have rubber, uh, everything else gets totally recycled. So, you know, we could go to a 100% recycled society very easily if we have the lower cost in energy. And that's why I say there's so much potential for the future, but it's like, you know, California right now, they're shutting down one of their nuclear power plants because the anti-nuclear activists are, are there. And when you look at it, there are a lot of people that are pro-nuclear. They're afraid to stand up. Uh, they're afraid to stand up and, and be counted. And that is the perception that our mainstream media uh, leaves with us. And so, you know, I'm, I'm like, you know, how do we get around the perceptions of mainstream media in pushing that agenda. That's a very hard uh, thing to take. And I do see where, you know, mainstream media has had its credibility threatened uh, so badly that people are, are starting to stop to listen to it. Uh, the thing is, is that we're not having it replaced with anything else that is uh, non-spin and it's just 100% truth with no, uh, without trying to propagandize or make you look at it from a bad or a good angle. Just, you know, here's the news, let you decide. Uh, we don't we don't have any sources that are like that. We, we have a few that have tried to do that, and I think that they... Uh, were uh, somewhat successful in the beginning, but they're not that way now just because they saw better ratings by being able to spin and get people mad about things and keep us divisive. That's what the media is is there for, is to get you mad uh, and to get you angry uh, rather than to tell you the truth. Well, I, there's, yeah, there's a lot to unpack with that. The, um, a lot of it's political. Uh, I was listening to somebody recently. It was the Hegelian model of dialectic materialism, I believe it is, but basically getting everybody pissed off at each other. Yeah. But, you know, maybe from the standpoint of doing a desalinization plant in a place like California, you just back away from that and put it in a place like Florida where politically it might be easier to do. Right. And use it, and maybe we're focusing too much on what we can't do in places like California or New York, and as opposed to what can we do in places like a Texas or a 
Florida or wherever, where it's more palatable to get something passed to actually improve things. And then when those states leave places like New York and California in the dust, then they'll start to pick up on it. Uh, right. Right. Well, and, and, and that's the hope. Uh, I've uh, seen people that have modeled uh, these um, ideologies, they, they've modeled these ideologies uh, based in different states. And then they see what happens uh, during uh, a recession or a depression. As you see, like right now, there's a mass migration from California to Texas. Uh, Texas is becoming much more blue and uh, much less prosperous um, at, at this point. Uh, and so, you know, if you're, um, I guess, self-interested, uh, and you oppose the California state of mind, you want Californians to stay in California. But since you uh, can't really restrict them and build a wall at their border, uh, you know, Californians are going to go to where they believe that they have the best deal. Will they learn or are they so ideologically driven? Will they try to recreate California and the states that they migrate to? Right now, we're seeing in Texas that they're trying to recreate California and Texas. And that's, you know, very problematic for us. Uh, how do we get people that have been trained through our education system, through mainstream media, to become, that, that are so invested in an ideology that they can't say no to it? If they say no to it, they've lost credibility within themselves. Well, Texas has been a target um, for years. In fact, when I was writing uh, years ago at Red State, the, I did a, a post on, there's a group called Turn Texas Blue. And I had somebody from Texas say, oh, they'll never flip Texas. I was like, yeah, you wait. Once it goes the from electoral college standpoint, that's the rest of the country. Right. And, and a lot of people uh, see Texas and they say, oh, it's always been red. No. Lyndon B. Johnson came from Texas. Texas that's true. was very blue at you know one point. It was the uh, revolution uh, led by Susan Weddington and David Barton uh, that turned Texas politics not Republican but conservative. And, uh, you know, I, I uh, like to think that I helped play uh, a small part of, of a role in that um, as well. But uh, it's never, I, I, like Reagan said, I'll probably uh, mangle this, but it, it's never passed along into the bloodstream. Our, our freedom is not. Um, <clears throat> where we look at... Uh, this we always have to be vigilant and there are a lot of Texans that are always going to be vigilant and the only way that you're going to um, stop that because Texans are normally a very proud bunch they're normally a very proud bunch from being raised the way that they are and having traditional American values instilled in them but when you're bringing in so many outsiders immigrating into uh, the state is always going to have an effect, and it has the effect to potentially turn uh, Texas blue again. So I, I, I would not look at them as, uh, you know, being, oh, well, Texas will always be uh, Republican red. 
Um, no, they, they have a war that they're fighting, and uh, they're not winning at it at this point. Right. Well, and Arizona's already turned purple to blue. So. Yep. yep. Or, well, I shouldn't say that entirely. They, they've just got a governor in there now that's, that's blue. I think the yeah. legislature's still red. I think Utah is the Utah and Texas. I think are the the number one uh, targets for the uh, DNC at at this point as to how can they start changing hearts and minds and bringing them over to the Democrat side of thinking and into what they call the the comfort of a, of a democratic socialism. Uh, and, and that's what, you know, people see as, you know, oh, the gov- don't worry, the government's there to provide for you. And that's the big uh, enticement uh, to socialism, especially if you're a young uh, person right out of high school, maybe not going to college. Uh, socialism's very attractive. Uh, government services, getting stuff for free is is very attractive. And, you know, we need to uh, admonish that. Uh, as using the uh, government as a crutch and produce more individualism, which sparks entrepreneurism, which sparks uh, our ingenuity that we have here in America, which is every 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 country in the world is just jealous of American ingenuity. So we mentioned a little while ago um, the debt, and while while you're talking, I pulled up U.S. debt clock. Dot org. I don't know if you visited that, but mm-hmm. the current debt is $31.7 trillion. Mm-hmm. The U.S. total debt is $96.1 trillion. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you were to look at the personal debt per citizen, you're at 73000 Total personal debt is, I think that's $24 trillion. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, so where do we go from here? Well, uh, the only thing that I can see is returning uh, to a productive base, uh, productivity-based currency. Um, okay, explain that. Well, you, you have what is uh, fiat currency now. A lot of people know what that is. Um, when uh, uh, th- uh, thanks to Bill Still, uh, one of the economists that's uh, been on a lot of the PBS uh, uh, stations. Um, he uh, helped to uh, show people that money supply that the money supply is king, and whoever controls the money supply is king. Um, fiat currency is uh, money that uh, because you say it so. So it can be a, a piece of paper like what we have today. It could be digital currency. It could be uh, something else. Uh, then you have uh, commodity-based currency, which. I will argue is a fiat currency in itself. Uh, gold supply, uh, it just limits the supply so that the government can't uh, limit it, but it only has market value. Uh, gold does not have intrinsic value. It, it normally almost always has market value, but intrinsically it does not have value. A, a shiny piece of metal uh, can't go out and, and cut the grass in your yard. It, it, it can't put a roof on your house. It can't do plumbing or anything like that. Intrinsic value is what we want, and we want that as a commodity. And what is that? If you're on a desert island and uh, you want to uh, create a form of currency, 
you're and you have other people that are with you, you're more than likely going to base that upon productivity or work. Um, in a modern sense, uh, what we learned from uh, Benjamin Franklin is is that uh, productivity-based currency is you putting yourself into debt voluntarily versus slavery, which is kind of what we have now, which is uh, you not having the ability to decide to put yourself into debt. And so when you uh, marry those concepts together, it becomes a basis of loans. A promise to repay is a promise to be productive, to be able to earn, to be able to repay your debt. And that should be the basis for our currency um, so that the government can never produce more or less than what the people themselves voluntarily indebt themselves to. Uh, We don't want the government controlling the money supply. We want we the people controlling that money supply. That would take a constitutional amendment uh, so that the government cannot create money uh, as it wants um, and keep on raising the debt ceiling. If the people don't want to work, then money's not going to be created. If people want to work, then money will be uh, created. And the best thing about a productivity-based currency is, is that, yes, you do charge interest, but you create that interest proactively and let the government spend that into the economy. So, you know, if you look at, hey, um, we have Farmer Jones who wants $100,000 to buy property to grow beets or lettuce or, or, or what have you, um, uh, let's just say that he gets a 30-year loan. Let's just say that uh, with the interest rate and the banking fees, uh, that's $13,000 on top of that. Uh, so uh, he needs $113,000. If there was no money in the economy and you had a, a print shop that was going to print the currency, uh, they would print up $113,000. $100,000 goes to Farmer Jones. $13,000 goes to the government to spend into the economy to expand the economy. Um, that way, Farmer Jones has the ability to be able to pay back $113,000. Problems with the system that we have now is that there's either not enough money um, uh, so that people can pay that back, or there's way too much money because we're uh, monetarists and we monitor the economy and uh, we put Uh, or we try to decide, we try to guess at how much money that we need to place into the economy to be able to make money back. The problem is is that we have so much money that leaves the United States and goes to other countries that it's very hard for us to predict, and especially if we have something like, you know, let's say other countries start saying, oh, the dollar is not a good value. I need to get rid of my dollar bills. Well, we have... Uh, you know, uh, trillions of dollars coming back into the United States, um, it could make our money, you know, next to being worthless. So it's also a, a security issue as well 
with uh, going to a more inherently safe uh, system that the government doesn't control, that we the people control, um, that would be, uh, you know, and, and that would be, you know, again, based upon our loans uh, that we would get uh, uh, through the uh, banking system. That necessarily means that you need to have a lot of coordination, uh, and that almost necessitates that the banking system be nationalized. With nationalization comes inherent problems and inherent dangers, unless you have it spelled out in a constitutional amendment and the people and the states hold uh, those in Washington, D.C. to that constitutional amendment. Otherwise, the next best system is probably going to be the gold system or a gold standard. Um, with that, though, there are many inherent problems uh, with a gold standard, not the least of which is the resources to find the gold and then the ability for the government to revalue uh, that gold standard. Um, so, to me, that gives the government more power when you go to a gold standard. I'd like the people to have more power rather than the government. And so, and I'd like them to be able to voluntarily place themselves into debt if they want to, uh, rather than uh, involuntarily being placed into debt. Well, we're on the gold standard till what, 1972 or three? It was underneath Nixon that we were taken off the gold standard, and right. that was because we didn't have enough gold to reconcile with other countries. Um, when you when we were uh, a dominant exporting nation, that's going to happen. Uh, globalism tends to facilitate that. Um, was it was it you or or did I hear this somewhere else that a lot of the countries, um, whether it's in Europe or China or whomever, a lot of other countries are now buying up gold and, and again that that is uh I, I do agree with that i don't know if you heard that from me but uh gold silver uh platinum uh there are a lot of commodities that become valuable uh during a depression or a recession if you suspect that there is a global uh depression or a global recession coming a lot of government stock up on commodities that tend to have value. Now, myself, I think gold is not the best in a depression or a, a recession. Everything's going to go down in value. Gold will maintain more of its value than other things, but there are other things that will be uh, very much prized uh, during a recession or a depression. Uh, buying a huge stock in uh, toilet paper, buying a huge stock in uh, medicine, buying a huge stock in cigarettes, uh, things like that tend to increase in value in a depression uh, rather than being uh, uh, reduced. And so while uh, a country couldn't really physically you know, in, invest in something like that, individuals themselves uh, could and that's one of the things where you see a, a, a prepper movement that's out there, and I've got you know nothing against preppers. It's just hard to uh, predict when 
that will be uh, uh, necessary. And so you may be prepping for 25 years before the economy goes to hell, but you'll be a lucky son of a gun uh, if, 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 it, if it does go to hell, like you know, a lot of people are predicting it to be. As, as long as it goes to hell before the expiration date on whatever boxes are in your closet. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so let me come back to, and I know we've got to wrap up soon, but uh, let me come back to where do we see things in the next, say, six months, year, two years, five years, whatever. Give me, give me your short and longer term projections. Because I need uh, to figure out whether my prepping is going to be expiring. A lot, of, uh, a lot of predictions are based on triggers. Economists are rarely right. Um, it's normally something that will, will come. And so you've got to try to predict triggers. Um, a trigger could be uh, China and Taiwan uh, or China trying to take Taiwan and United States, uh, Australia, Japan uh, stepping up and going to war with China. World War Three, yes, that that could be a trigger. Um, we could have a uh, a trigger with uh, natural gas. We could have a trigger with uh, artificial intelligence. So, short term, everything stays the way that it's going. Our recession that we are in now. That I, I uh, a lot of economists agree with me that we are in a recession. Uh, we will see this recession uh, deepen. If we have a trigger fall, we believe that it'll be very easy uh, for that to go and turn into a depression. A lot of the economists believe that by uh, next year, mid-year, or maybe in the fourth quarter. Uh, 2024 that we uh, do see a trigger fall. Um, you know, these are just based upon guesses that we are either going to see an AI dominant revolution happen, or we're going to see uh, China go after uh, Taiwan. Uh, we're we're going to see potentially something happen uh, that will cause our fall into a depression. Uh, in 2024, not a recession, a depression, one that has the potential to be much, much worse than our 1930s Great Depression. Um, and so, you know, uh, short term, uh, we're doing things bad unless we see the Biden administration change its uh, attitudes on uh, nuclear, if we see them change their attitudes on uh, natural gas. Uh, on coal, on you know a lot of these uh, basic elements that are the basis of uh, which our economy runs on, uh, we're just going to see things progressively get worse uh, until we hit a trigger, and then you're going to have that waterfall. Um, it's hard to see that at at some point that we don't have that trigger and. And I hope to God that we don't. Uh, I do pray that we uh, don't have a trigger and that we don't go through this much, go through that much pain. But our politics, our ideologues, our mainstream media, and our academia has put us in such a precarious point to where we're on this balancing act, and somebody is shaking our wire. 
Your your timing is interesting because you're saying fourth quarter potentially 2024, which of course is election year, mm-hmm. right? And right. you you often wonder, and you mentioned <laughs> politics, if that has to play into it. It's, you know, it's that whole thing: no no good crisis goes to waste. <laughs> Well, you know, the, the one thing that I will say is is that um, if we keep going the way that we are and we do see that trigger in the economy and we are in a very bad predicament, it's going to depend on who wins as to whether or not we spend 10 years in a greater depression or whether or not we're only in a depression for one or two years. Um, it will be those changes. And so... You know, to me, it's like, okay, if you're a Republican, it works to your benefit if the economy is trashed, um, you know, com- coming to the uh, November of 2024. And, you know, not that I hope that, you know, uh, Republicans in the House help to facilitate that, but I'm sure that that's going to be in some of their back of their heads while they're making decisions uh, to go forward as, you know, hey, how can we inf- – uh, make more pain uh, on the nation so that we get more people to vote Republican, uh, that that might have some of that, you know, uh, thinking that mentality there. And I hope that's not the case, but uh, history has, has served to show, has, has served to let us see that, you know, that is most likely the case that we will have things like that happen. Why do you think depression as opposed to recession? Is that because the fundamentals underneath are, are bad, like the debt? And well, cause, cause uh, we just the, the, crashed the economy two years ago with the pandemic, and we just printed our way back out of it. Well, we, we printed our way out of it, but we have a lot of banks that are holding uh, a lot of money that haven't put that econ- that haven't put that money into the economy. Uh, because entrepreneurism, uh, by and large, is dead in most states. Um, most people are like, hey, if you're going to pay me to stay home, I'm going to stay home and take advantage of that. Um, and that's what they did. And we've had a hard road. We had a lot of businesses go out of business. We had some of those businesses come back, but we had a lot of them stay out of business. And so there's a growing comfort with not being productive. And the, the, the overarching theme of, of Benjamin Franklin was is that productivity is golden, and Americans' productivity has always been very, very high, higher than the rest of the world. And now we're dipping, we're, we're coming down, we're, we're getting this new age of uh, complacency. And so I, I really think that we, um, we've got to get back to the way that we were before the pandemic. But a lot of people have come to accept the way that we were in the pandemic, and that's the new normal. And so you know, I, I think until we overcome that, uh, that uh, feeling, that uh, philosophy of the pandemic, uh, and get back to uh, pursuing exceptionalism, uh, pursuing the American dream, having dreams, um, I think that we will continue to falter and have the possibility to fail. Well, on that bright note, <laughs> John, thank you for coming on today. It's, it's fun to kind of ruminate about everything. 
still don't have an answer as to whether I should buy more stocks or not. Stock up, I mean. Look what the preppers are buying and buy that. It's always safe. <laughs> Bread and ammo. There you go. There you anyway. Go. All right. Well, sir, thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Take care, sir. Thanks. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was economist John Morrow giving us a rather bleak forecast into the near and maybe midterm future. I don't know if I actually got an answer as to whether or not the advent of AI and robotics are going to help replace the workforce that's not going to be being born. But in any case, it's more data points to look at. There's certainly some solutions out there if the government will get out of the way. But that remains to be seen as well. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at WorkplaceRPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. As always, have a great week and thanks for listening. I need to go check the expiration date on that can of beans. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.